we are in a series of discussions here on Sundays where our goal is for all of us to feel a bit more free to believe in an entirely loving God, a God who is entirely trustworthy, that we're not looking over our shoulder about, and we don't have a hint of anxiety interacting with. We can go to distinctive, uh, uh, instinctively to this God with our difficulties, our fears, our passions, whatever. That is how relationships work, right? A good relationship is somebody we can instinctively go to and we, just, we know we can trust them. And there's no different uh, with our relationship with God. But as we've been discussing, American culture in general, and ironically, American religious culture kind of make it hard to believe in that, which is weird, right? Like the religious people should be the ones who are making it most easy to believe in a loving God, but that's not always the case. And I wonder if you feel that way as we often do. Can't be that all there is to love, all there is to God is love, right? There's got to be, isn't, doesn't the Bible teach that like there's this punishing side of God? That's what a, I think a lot of us have been sold. What's the catch? Isn't there fine print? So most people do not have like the, the space and the time in life to engage cognitive dissonance like this. Like who, who can blame anyone if we don't feel like we have the time to think about these things? And so, of course, for many of us, our relationship with God just kind of remains stuck because this is like, I don't have time to think. I, I have a job. I have kids. I have things that I have to worry about. We want to make the, the whole point of this series is we want to make engaging this cognitive dissonance feel possible. You need a consistent and trustworthy God for the hardest things in your life, right? Like life is unrelenting. There, if, if you're not experiencing stress right now, chances are you will by the end of next week. Life is full of injustice. You know, life is full of, 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 of just senseless experiences that we can't, we can't look at and just say, oh, there must be a reason for that. No, sometimes we look at things and we experience things that are just senseless and awful. We need a God that we can fully trust. We, can't, we, 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 we cannot suffer uh, a God who is like a split personality. It's just, we don't have time for that. And so we want to make facing these cognitive dissonance experiences easier in this series. We want to throw them to the side so that we can fully trust God. And we actually believe that there are a lot of satisfying ways that we can do that. We don't just have to talk, uh, chalk things up to God works in mysterious ways. So one of, um, one of the cognitive dissonance questions uh, that we got on Easter Sunday when we asked everybody, like, what are your questions along these lines, uh, was on the topic of the Bible. If our experience uh, at this church is that the Bible is an important resource to the modern spiritual life, an important resource to our like pursuit of love and justice in the world, then what do we do with all of the violence in the Bible? That's a great question, right? Like that, that's an obstacle. If I want to be somebody who wants to follow this God that supposedly is revealed in some way in the Bible, what do we do? And particularly in the Old Testament with all this violence, how do we reconcile that with an all loving God? That was an awesome question. And we had a bunch of people like plus one that on Easter. They were like, yeah, I have that question too, but God, I don't have the time to consider it. Hey, maybe we can have the time this morning. That's what this is about. Uh, for some of us, this is like really highly pressurized because you grew up maybe in a setting that told you the Bible is without error. So some of you might be feeling in that place. Some of us here might not feel quite that pressurized, like, but it still doesn't make sense. It's like, okay, this is definitely in that category of not going to think about it because it's just too much. So all of this, all of this is what we want to uh, respond to. We do think there are ways that are satisfying. And as we've been doing, we're going to have multiple 
responses to this question today. Kyle and Haley and myself, our pastoral staff, we're each going to, uh, we've in this whole series, we're preparing uh, different responses to the hard questions that we're facing. And uh, our job, we don't think is to tell you this is right and this is wrong. We're going to be, we're going to have overlap in our responses, but there'll also be like different places that we're going. And that's cool. We're okay with that. We encourage you all to take what you will and leave what you'd rather not. Uh, for addressing this question this week, we're going to add a further wrinkle, okay? So it's a little bit, little bit of an extra thing going on. We hope that this like adds to the freedom that we feel, but also like we should probably be clear about it because it's a little bit quirky. So Kyle is going to go first and let me just like everybody listen. Kyle is going to share unsatisfying responses, dissatisfying responses, okay? Right? So He's because his personal experience growing up in a highly religious environment, he has a unique ability to speak from that perspective. And what we want to do is, is often, if you're from that perspective, you're not really given permission to ask questions. And we want Kyle to be your avatar, to be able to say, here is what I've been taught. So you can like, here, yeah, that's what I've been taught. And then Kyle to be able to say like, yes, and, and I don't find that satisfying. So just remember like Kyle is our sacrificial lamb. He is he is taking on the perspective uh, that we don't want you to come away. He's not endorsing it either, <laughs> but we just want to be really clear about that. And then Kyle, uh, or and then Haley and I will uh, will share afterwards uh, some perspectives that we would we we would endorse. We would kind of encourage you to think more about. Uh, so does that sound good, everybody? Cool, right? We're, we're tracking. Kyle is the heel today. <laughs> okay, so um, let me pass it over uh, to Kyle, who is just so gracious. He is our sacrificial lamb this morning. Go for it, Kyle. No, I'm, uh, and if you're familiar with the Enneagram, I am an eight. And so there is absolutely no burden on me to have to be the person that says things the just the basis of disagreeing with. Um, but to make it clear, in case anybody joins our Zoom link late, and they catch me halfway through a sentence and go, oh, is Kyle trying to present this as a way that is satisfying? So we have three common approaches that I most frequently encountered and experienced uh, myself growing up. Um, and uh, the first one that I found unsatisfying that I came across with would be that of just ignore it. We're wrestling with the reality that the version of uh, faith and the version of God that we see in Jesus in the New Testament and the narratives that we hear most commonly associated with Jesus are about mercy and grace and love and acceptance. And so when we wrestle with stories in the Old Testament around genocide and violence and murder that seem to both uh, be inflicted uh, against those following God, but also most problematically, God using violence to seemingly punish other people, that feels like some internal conflict. And ignore it sounds malicious, but I really don't think it is. I think the truth is we as humans have limited bandwidth. We just don't have the ability to wrestle with every question on earth. And I think a lot of times for me, the solution to seeing that violence against the love and mercy that I saw in Jesus was just to not pay attention to it very much, just to say, I'm going to focus on other things. Um, and the reason why I found this unsatisfying for me personally is because uh, by ignoring a question for me, that, and this didn't just feel like a passing question, the anxiety and stress and angst that I felt around this question were not resolved by ignoring it. 
Now, if there was a way that I could actually just totally ignore it and it didn't sit with me at all, it didn't stir up problematic questions, maybe that'd be one thing. But for me, I was never able to satisfactory get to a place and not actually try to rectify the question. So that, that's the first thing that I think is most commonly done in our world today around these challenges of violence. The second one is, I'm saying, cut off the Old Testament. This was a big, essentially, we just throw up the Old Testament is like, that's the, that's a, that's the Jewish Bible, we're Christians, or there's a sense of like, that's the, that's the pre-Jesus stuff. The pre-Jesus stuff doesn't really matter that much. And so we're going to literally print just the New Testament, and we're going to have entire Bibles that start with the Gospels, and we're really just not going to pay attention to the Old Testament very much. Um, the, the biggest reason that this felt most problematic to me, other than feeling a lack of kind of internal integrity around what I was considering uh, helpful material and, and speaking into my life, was the, the sense of that the world that Jesus is stepping into, he didn't step into just any culture, any space, any time. He stepped into the Jewish world and the Jewish culture with the Jewish tradition and the entire narratives and stories and truths of the Old Testament behind it. And so I actually don't think we can fully wrestle with everything that's happening with Jesus in the New Testament without actually spending some time trying to understand the Old Testament. And then secondarily, there's some things in the Old Testament that I think are, are pinnacle for how I understand God. Uh, naming, uh, for, the Bible group just went through Genesis 1 through 11, that is fundamentally asking the question, who are we in relation to God and in relation to the world? And I just think that to, to know what the base understanding of that question was, and to then read Jesus's words on top of that and to see for myself like we are loved, made in God's image, made to be valued, made to be in community, to me is too rich of a truth to just cut off the Old Testament. The third unsatisfactory approach is the one that I spent the most time in. I wrestled a lot with this question. And so I dove into some of the most uh, kind of popularized and well-circulated conservative evangelical theologies to make amends with this. So everything I'm about to say to you right now, I did believe at one point in my life. And to be clear again, I do not believe this now. And I find it deeply and found it deeply unsatisfying when this was my belief. And to say again, I am not creating a false caricature. That's not my goal here. Uh, everything I'm saying to you in a moment is quoted and sourced from respected evangelical conservative scholars. And this is essentially the belief that God actually is full of anger, wrath, and violence towards us. The, there isn't a tension. The truth is the New Testament version of God is not one who no longer feels anger, wrath, and violence. It's still there. And that is actually true to who God is. The way that this is articulated most commonly is our sin, and so this is quoting uh, from uh, is a bunch of evangelical conservatives, our sin, which uh, defined by the breaking of the law or the removal of ourselves from God's will uh, in many sorts of ways, but anything that is defined as sin for us is actually putting us as a position of enemy from God. We are separating ourselves from God. So in short, our sin is making us God's enemy. And God 
cannot stand evil. God cannot stand sin. And because of this, the violence we see in the Old Testament, the use of genocide, the use of plagues to torment and physically harm people is consistent with how God views us in sin, that that is actually our rightful punishment. Our rightful punishment is to experience violence and suffering and wrath. Now, Jesus stepping into this in the New Testament shifted that so that the shift we see from the New Testament and the Old Testament is actually not a shift in God's character. It is a shift in where we stand. And essentially what this is saying is the role of the cross, the role of Jesus stepping into the cross, is God being able to satisfy his own desire for violence, his own desire for punishment that we rightfully deserve. But being able to take that violence out on Jesus instead of us. So that if we look to Jesus and choose to follow him, we experience continual forgiveness and mercy in the rightful violence and anger that we are due. And the problem for me with this feels uh, really complex. It talks to me about not only a picture of God, who is, uh, and this is to me why in many ways God and Jesus kind of weren't the same person. Jesus is the merciful one that is creating a pathway for love, and God is the one that I am holding at bay. It created a really problematic image of this split personality for me. Secondarily, it created a real challenge for how I thought and related to the rest of the world around me. So what I mean is when my viewpoint is that God actually is super angry with us. And what we deserve is violence and suffering. But what protects me from that is a verbal and experiential commitment to the Christian faith. It is the identity of saying I'm a Jesus follower and doing the practices and commitments to stay within that that fends off the violence due to me. How that makes me think and orient, and this is not just abstract, this is true for me, how this made me think and orient myself to everybody in my life who was not a self-professed Christian had very real world impact. It, it meant that in many ways, they were either A, rightfully deserving of violence and suffering, and therefore my accountability to them was small. Or I have extreme anxiety about convincing them to make the same commitments towards Jesus I have had for fear that God is awaiting a desire to make them suffer, to bring violence upon them. And so to me, these, and I think this is important to say that we don't often articulate these things, even in evangelical settings, because it feels um, unnerving, 
but often it's it's phrased in the sense of like this is the stakes of sin this is why i cannot accept gay people this is why it's important that women don't speak in public because there's a part of the bible that i think is trying to say that i'm not sure but i need to be really careful because what's awaiting for me is violence and suffering and punishment if i fall outside of god's affirmation and so, so the, to me, these are the three primary ways that I think generally the American Christian world does try to wrestle with the violence of the Old Testament. All right. Well, I wonder if anyone sees themselves or sees their childhood or sees messages that they've experienced um, in, in any of the things that Kyle just expressed. And just a reminder, you know, to any of the aggregators of news out there, no taking anything that Kyle just said out of context. I know there's some sentences that you could take there, but uh, yeah. So Kyle, thank you for like articulating that. Again, our hope is that is that you if you if that's something that you're captured by, Kyle can be your avatar today to say, I like there's something missing here. I don't feel totally right about this. So we want to turn to some responses to like, what do we do with the fact that there's so much violence in the Bible? There's so much violence that is attributed to God in the Bible. What are some satisfying ways that we can understand that and make sense of that if we're people who believe that the Bible can be a resource to the modern spiritual life? Haley Larson, our pastor, uh, pastoral intern, is going to take our next response. So Haley, what do we think? Yeah, um, in thinking about the journey for me for reconciling violence and my understanding of God, um, my mind goes in a lot of different directions. And truthfully, it's really easy to get lost in that. I think a lot of it is from academic study. Um, as I've said before, wrestling with the Bible has been really freeing for me, and it's led to a more fulfilling picture of God. But it can also be disorienting. The saying comes to mind, um, you can't go over it, you can't go under it, you have to go through it. And that feels really fitting here when we start to think about these texts. At the end of the day, even in all the wrestling, I need a Jesus that stands in goodness. I rely on a God that I can worship. And accepting that reliance has been an anchor in all of the wondering and studying for me. So in that thread, I wanted to provide some broad overall realizations, and maybe it won't be as satisfying as getting into the nitty gritty of the biblical text for some people. But these have been some of my stepping stones in getting to a more fulfilling place. So the first realization, um, which Kyle talked about briefly, is this false dichotomy of an Old Testament, New Testament God, or a punishing versus a loving God is not a helpful framework. This false split discredits the beauty of God that is present in the Old Testament, that we have a loving creator that is in relationship with the created, a God that provides while people are in the wilderness, a comforting mother, a God that is faithful and offers loving kindness, even as the people fall away. All of these things are of, uh, they're held in tension, of course, with the difficult texts. These passages and scriptures get named by some scholars as texts of terrors, um, but the beautiful characteristics of God are overwhelmingly present. And this isn't saying that we ignore the violence, the approach that Kyle just discussed, but rooting the idea that God is good and trustworthy provides more ground to say, maybe I've accepted that this is how God acts 
but maybe it's actually what the author and original community thought God was up to. Attributing violence to God makes sense in a context and worldview that is filled with violence. And this ties into the next realization um, of needing to accept the humanity of the biblical text. In some settings, only the Bible is seen as the word of God, or at least the primary word of God, and that puts a lot of pressure on scripture. But we also have Jesus as a word of God. And if we see Jesus as fully divine and fully human, it makes sense to me that we would have a Bible that is also fully divine and, and fully human. That there are human authors that are absolutely shaped by their culture and context. And as culture and context shifts, the portrayal and understanding of God shifts. Labeling inconsistencies doesn't need to threaten faith or the soundness of the Bible. Vince will say more related to this, but in the Bible itself, there is a shift of different human perspectives of God. We see that present. So naturally for us as an unintentional audience to the unfolding story of the Bible, our view of God shifts. God is unchanging, but our understanding of God changes. And this goes hand in hand with my last broad realization for this morning, that sometimes the Bible says more about the people of God than it actually says about God. We've talked about this related to the cross, but there is a human desire for violence. There is a focus on retribution and destruction that says more about humanity than it does about the nature of God. So I can see the logic, the logic that takes war and pain, famine and disaster, and says, well, this must be the punishment from God that we deserve. It's not a leap to get there, to come to that conclusion, both for those in the Bible, original audiences, and readers and hearers throughout time. And yet, the Bible time and time again reminds us of the love of God. And this isn't in a dismissive way, but it's saying that if we understand Jesus as the word of God, we can look at his life, death, and resurrection as love, justice, and empowerment. The love of God is restorative. It's active. It's not passive. And because of that lens of love, I'm comfortable saying maybe the story here isn't speaking um, directly about God as much as it is speaking about humanity. A practical landing place for me has been um, embracing a, a way that creatively engages the Bible. When scripture gets turned into a textbook or rule book, it's extremely difficult to read texts in a way that are actually edifying, especially when we focus in on these texts that are violent. And the textbook rule book portrayal keeps people away from the Bible, especially when it comes to these stories. Someone I've looked to for help in finding creative ways to look at the Bible is Rachel Held Evans, um, who sadly passed away in May of 2019. But before she died, she released a book. Um, she has a lot of wonderful books out, but the last one that she wrote is a book called Inspired. And her focus here is on creativity, acknowledging the range of genres that are present in the Bible and how human involvement shapes the language that's used. There's a permission here to come to the Bible with a holy imagination that's rooted in the view that God is good. Holding goodness alongside of biblical wrestling leads to a more edifying understanding of God for me. And the other book I have come across recently, it's on my to read list, which is a rather long list, but I do want to get to it. Um, this is a book called Fire by Night, 
Finding God in the Pages of the Old Testament by Melissa Flora Bixler, and she's a Mennonite pastor and author. So I wanted to close um, just with a couple of brief quotes from an excerpt of her book. So if we could put um, those up on the side. So she writes, the Old Testament offers a different picture of God. The arc of God's story with the people of Israel is consistent. Humans mess up and God is relentless in forgiveness and grace. Over and over, Israel makes promises they cannot keep. Over and over, God is faithful. This narrative unfolds within the gritty details of vengeful, murderous, and at times disarmingly beautiful human lives. And then she goes on to say, um, I've come to see that the Bible is a reckoning where we come to face, when we come face to face with what we have done with the Bible or what the Bible has done to us. We cannot escape the interpretive communities we form. And these communities matter for how we will read the Bible today. Whenever we read the Bible, we participate in a history. In that history are those who have turned the good news into both joy and terror. And for me, recognizing that coming to the biblical text is an interaction, which she names as a reckoning, that there's a stress on creativity here. Um, I know I've mentioned this before, but if we're looking to come to the Bible in a way that justifies hatred and violence and um, using the Bible as a weapon, any type of justification for the abuse of others, we can do that. It's not, it's there, um, but there is absolutely edifying beauty that I think um, is a far better conclusion to come to in the way that we have this interaction with the Bible, how that gets used and played out in our communities, um, that it's not just an academic headspace, but it's about a relationship with God and within ourselves and within those around us. Haley, that is, that's really great. And one thing I want to pull out, just if you can say a bit more about um, before we, before I offer the final response for today, um, is it feels like a practical outworking of what you're saying is this idea of seeing ourselves, seeing humanity in the Bible as much as seeing God and a picture of God in the Bible. And, um, and in particular, in some of those scriptures where humanity is attributing things to God, but you're suggesting that we can see really important and really revealing things about us as people, as societies, as uh, groups, as tribes, uh, when we read those scriptures and, uh, and how that is like kind of your argument, that's just as important to do as to try to figure out what is God like, to ask the question, what are we like? And I, I was just wondering, like, off the top of your head, uh, can you think of an example of like a scripture that like when you look at it this way, um, it, you know, it, it maybe say, like, oh my gosh, God must be terrible. But then you look at it another way and you're like, what if this is about me? What if this is about us as humans? Yeah, it's, uh, there's so much there. Um, the, and I think something too to bring into this is that often people with privilege end up identifying themselves with people who are um, enslaved and marginalized and that is really problematic. So I don't want to insert myself in the text in a way that does that in any way. Um, yeah, I think, um, I don't know if this directly answers the question, but something that I have been looking at more closely because of a class I'm in is the language of the prophets in the Old Testament and how absolutely terrifying and horrifying 
that that is like, there's so much um, that they reference about the wrath of God and destruction and all of this. Um, but when you set that in a context that is overwhelmingly violent, that those words are intentionally charged to cut through the violence and bring people back into community. And so for me, realizing that sometimes the language, um, we do have to wrestle with it, but it's more so wrestling with the use of the language. Like what is the ultimate end goal? Um, and when the prophets are speaking of this destruction that they're attributing to God and being this um, almost a mouthpiece for what's going on here, they're, they're speaking from a human place as well. And if, it, if we would limit it to just focus on the violence, we lose that relational aspect that is actually saying, this is trying to get people's attention. Um, it's drastic and uh, it's really harsh but the function of it is to bring people back into relationship. Um, and so that's been some wrestling as of late that's helped me get to a more um, satisfying place, but it's definitely like, that's an ongoing place that I have to return to. Um, that the wrestling doesn't, I don't really ever think we get to a fully like, here's where I've landed. Maybe we do on some things, but I think there's a lot that it's just, it's ongoing. Well, I love this. I love uh, being painted a path in front of us that uh, that feels a, like a lot more something that I can travel and not like be feel like morally skeptical or morally questionable about God or about even the things that I'm that I'm uh, raising my hand to say I agree with or I affirm. Uh, we did have uh, a couple of mentions for uh, uh, Haley the books that you were uh, referring to. So if you can drop those in the chat. Um, for the final response today that I wanted to bring, and then we'll just have a little bit of time for, uh, for some back and forth of questions. Um, I wanted to say, so um, my response is, is gonna come from a slightly different um, perspective in that uh, I totally, like we can, we can absolutely, we absolutely wanna say that there are beautiful parts of the Old Testament and there are things that, you know, like are, are, are really important that we don't wanna lose. And my, uh, what I wanna suggest is, you know, not throwing those things out, as Kyle mentioned, that would be a dissatisfying thing, but I'm gonna lean heavily into uh, the perspective that acknowledges those are really problematic. And, and we may have to do some real disentangling uh, if we're going to believe in a God of all love. So it, uh, if, if this perspective feels helpful to anyone here, uh, I'm gonna recommend against the approach that if we look hard enough, we can explain away the moral concern of violence being ascribed to God. And so uh, that, that being the third thing that Kyle mentioned of like, can we just like, oh no, it's, a, it's actually appropriate for God to feel these ways. And when they, were, when they were penned by the people who wrote the various scriptures that make up the Bible, they were right. That is how God feels. And we can take those two today. Uh, definitely gonna recommend against that. Um, and I really like uh, what Haley was mentioning is that there is, it's okay for us to acknowledge that there's a development, a, a change, uh, even a progression in the way God is conceived of as we follow the unfolding story in the Bible. It, it's, it is more complicated than like Old Testament equals angry and New Testament equals loving. It, it's more complicated than that, but there's definitely a progression. We can see things start to take shape and God being talked about differently. We're not crazy when most of us look from the surface and think the Old Testament God is really different from the New Testament God. It's like, yeah, no, you're not crazy to see that. 
Um, so what I want to uh, harp uh, lean in on is, of course, what what Haley mentioned is my position is not that God has changed, like not that like, yes, there used to be an angry God, but then that God is no longer angry because of what Jesus did. My position is the same as Haley's in that I, d- I think that the way we've conceived of God has developed and progressed over time. God has always been the true God of love, and we are coming to an ever more increasing understanding and awareness of what that is. And uh, we, of course, we would do that because people have changed. Situations have changed. Cultures have changed. There are like, if you followed every scripture that is in the Bible, there are like multiple different societies at different points in their history represented there. And so all of them are different. And so we've got to, uh, that that has to be taken into account. Um, so as as Haley was kind of leaving into, leaning into like the the content of the story of the Bible and like talking about how like we can we can uh, learn something if we kind of marinate in that. I'm going to lean into talking about the authors, the people who actually wrote these things, because like we were saying, like there isn't just a human side and a God side to the uh, to the scriptures themselves, to the stories themselves. There's a human side and a divine side to those people who felt like they were passing on what God was speaking to them. And so I want to lean into that human side of those authors. My wondering is that the progression we see in, uh, in, in the Bible and like the, uh, the way they conceive of God uh, as we follow the story is actually a feature. It's not, it's not a bug in the system. It's a feature. It's, it's like, oh, that, that's actually a good thing because what it shows us is that as the story has unfolded, there has always been interpretation and reinterpretation going on. And anytime we're doing that, anytime we're like engaging in the same thing of wondering, how does this apply to us today? And we reinterpret or we reimagine a picture of God or a way that the scripture can speak to today. That's actually good. That's actually happening within the Bible itself. And so uh, to, to explain uh, an example of that, I want to go back to uh, last week at the end of our uh, of our message. Uh, one of our uh, uh, stakeholders here at uh, Brownline, Laura Johnson, asked an awesome question. She put in the chat, how can we condemn the actions of Pharaoh in the Exodus to kill the firstborns of Hebrews? We In the song that we sang this morning and we sang last week, we evoked that idea of Pharaoh coming to kill the children of the Hebrews. How can we... Uh, like uh, condemn that. But then later on in the story of the Exodus, there is this time where attributed to God is the 10 plagues. And one of the plagues is killing the firstborn children of the Egyptians. So how can we condemn the Egyptians for doing this, but then be okay with the God of the Hebrews doing this? That's a really great, great, great question. And uh, and so what I what I wanted to bring up is actually, there's this incredible thing where the Bible itself actually asks the questions that, that, that we are asking in that of like, how can we be okay with this? The Bible itself later on in the story of the Bible, there is a passage that asks this very question. I'm going to put it up on the screen for us. It's from the prophet Ezekiel. And in, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 18, this is what we get. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? And now we're going to have a reference to what was happening. The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. How can we quote that? He's saying, how can we, how can we be a people that, you know, that believe that like, just because maybe the Egyptians were oppressors, that their children can be the ones killed. How can we be okay with that? And Ezekiel says this, he says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, 
you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. You will no longer quote this. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. And so I think this, this one is a really interesting example. It's just one of many, many examples where within the Bible itself, we have an earlier story that's recorded. And then hundreds of years later, we have somebody else writing about the same feelings and asking a question that reimagines God. Ezekiel doesn't say like, well, you know, the, the Bible says it, the story of the Exodus says it. So that is just, that is who our God is. Ezekiel is asking us to reimagine our picture of God. Can we believe in a God? who punishes children for their parents' sins? Ezekiel saying, no, we can no longer quote that proverb in uh, Israel. We have to believe in a different God. So this is one of those examples that I want to mention. Of We, could, the, uh, we hope that these uh, conversations on Sunday invite more conversation. So I just wanted to throw this out as one, uh, one we can point to of the Bible within it itself. There is reinterpretation going on of something that was said about God earlier or something that was attributed to God earlier. So when we do that as people today, when we reimagine uh, what it means uh, to follow God in new realities, with new questions, in new times, we are in the same tradition as the biblical writers. We're in the exact same tradition. And of course, the biggest example of this being Jesus, who innovated spirituality in massive ways. He said things like, you've heard it said, but, but I say this. And he had this famous quote of new wineskins are needed for new wine, as if to say, like, we can't just expect all ancient things to just speak without any interpretation to today. And we need to do the work of kind of like reimagining and re-understanding and reinterpreting. All of that is a good thing. It's not something that we need to be afraid of or scared of. It's not disrespecting the scriptures to do that. It is actually respecting them all the more because we're sort of demanding that they do speak to our today realities, even when things are different. So I, I, I like this idea of leaning into like, it's okay that we see differences. It's okay that we see something uh, from long ago, from very ancient scriptures that rub us the wrong way. And we say, do you know, I think it's okay for us to reimagine those things. I think it's okay for us to reinterpret those things because we see that happening within the stories of the Bible itself. And we can join in that tradition today. The last thing I'll say is I just think like this this is an approach that embraces like transparency. It's like being honest about when things are like, we're, we're honestly saying like, look, this acknowledgement about who God is or uh, what we can attribute to God, we're going to admit that that was inaccurate and that we are actually up, like we're going to tweak that for our day today. I would argue that that approach of like being transparent about that actually makes the Bible more powerful, not less powerful, because it shows us that we can be a people who can reflect on our mistakes as much as on our wins. And there is no such thing as, as, as many of us might, uh, might, might know from our study of history, there's no such thing as history told by the losers, except the Hebrew people in the Bible. It's like maybe the one thing, historians discuss this about whether, is there any other people group in the history of the world that has been like the Hebrews, which have told stories where they're not always the winner. Everybody always tells their story with them being the winner, but the Hebrews are weird. They do things differently. And that's the tradition that Jesus came from. And that's the tradition that we're asked to step into and make some of our own uh, when we become people who, who, who want to learn from the Bible. I'm really struck by that. I think that does make this more powerful and not less powerful when we can be honest.
Vince, I'm thinking, oh, (laughs) Um, in thinking about the way that the Bible uh, reinterprets itself, I was thinking of another example uh, in in Luke 4, when Jesus is using scripture in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he reads a scroll from the prophet Isaiah. Um, I've got it pulled up here. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and he sits down and everyone looks at him because he doesn't (laughs) finish reading the text. He stops in the middle of the line um, because the original text in Isaiah ends with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. But he doesn't say that when he's teaching, he removes that last line. And I think there's something there of what does it mean to remove the aspect of vengeance um, in what Jesus is saying, the people that Jesus is speaking to. So this idea of seeing the Bible reinterpreting itself and Mm. how Jesus interacts with scripture, how Paul does as well. Um, that we, we miss when we have to cling to this idea that there needs to be a consistent view of God throughout the whole text. But accepting that sometimes the Bible does reinterpret itself, I think is a really fruitful conversation. That's awesome. What a great example. Um, Kyle, I think you had something to say. And then Allison, we have probably have time for like one question to be mined um, from comments. So if you want to bring one in after Kyle. Yeah, well, to echo Ben, pretty much I- Jesus like has whole sections where he reinterprets scripture when he says, you have heard it said, but I say, uh, and he's quoting scripture every time he's reinterpreting that. But, you know, I think this is one of those areas just a flag. Uh, but those that grew up like me, so there's like been words and phrases said here that get your anxiety rising. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm like legit that uh, there's a, there's a, and the, one of my favorite parts about uh, doing this church with Vince over the last eight years or so has realizing Vince didn't grow up in the same world I grew up in. And the things that feel really anxiety provoking me just don't to him. Um, and helping me see how much of that, that it's tied into my cultural and Id- my cultural identity growing up. Cause it's not just, oh, am I diverging from evangelical conservatism? I'm happy to do that. But it is diverging from the identity that was founded in my parents. Am I diverging from something my parents believe? What does that mean about me? Am I diverging from, and especially the world I grew up in, there was a, such a sense of what is awaiting for me if I get this wrong is, it, is really high stakes punishment. And so there's a lot of stress and anxiety. Like, I don't want to reimagine because if I reimagine what, like, what if I am- Maybe I go to hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, for for me, just to to flag that for anybody else that is feeling anxiety about that, what I want to flag about that anxiety is in that anxiety is where I have actually had some of my most meaningful experiences with Jesus is bringing that to him and saying, what is going on here? Why does this feel so destabilizing to me and helping him separate out who he is and the truth the Bible reveals from the culture I came from and the world I came from. And I haven't thrown the, the there's still some things that I hold on to very deeply, but it's different. Um, 
and uh yes exactly i then would agree with that the the one pot the one non just i don't believe this contribution i'll make to this conversation is i think that you see a, a really distinct difference in the new testament and the old testament of the area of focus of what god in the biggest way is what is the kingdom of god in the Old Testament, like if you, we were talking earlier, like you to ask a modern Jewish person, what's the kingdom of God? They're like, that doesn't make the kingdom of God is Israel. It's a, the kingdom of God is a literal nation state. In the New Testament, the kingdom of God is an inclusion and invitation for all people. So I don't know about you, no nation state I've ever known of throughout history has existed without violence, without oppression without the enemying and conquering of other people. And actually to perceive that God is existing within us outside of those things requires a reimagination that we see in Jesus. What does it mean that the God of the universe came and chose to be sufferer? What does it mean that the God of the universe showed power through submission, not through conquering other people and therefore create a message of, of inclusion and humanity? So the distinction, what feels interesting to me between Old Testament and New is not a personality change of God. It is a focus and understanding of the people thinking, how is God bringing about the kingdom of heaven? Old Testament, the kingdom of heaven is a literal nation state. New Testament, we see Jesus open their imagination that the kingdom of heaven is an inclusive experience open to all people that is shown through mercy, love, and self-sacrifice for others. Mm, and that ties a lot to what Haley was mentioning in her response too. That's Well, we're, we're going a little bit long, but I do want to leave time for, for one question. So uh, Allison, anything you'd pull from chat for us to uh, give quick responses to? We'll do a lightning round. Um, yeah, um, Lara asked another great question. Um, so I'm just going to read exactly what she wrote. She said, so is Ezekiel saying that Moses was a story told to the Jewish people, not, not a historical event as modern evangelicals believe, and thus we have to acknowledge the way we tell stories about God needs to change. Lo love that question. Okay, so Haley, Kyle, and me, let's go with like, let's each respond really fast, Okay. I'm what's that lightning round lightning round yes lightning round okay so I'm gonna say yes I do not believe that uh that we have to look to the exodus as a historical event uh I'm gonna say no I think that the Jewish people and throughout history have understood that to be a historical event and what is changing there is our interpretation of what it means and specifically here talking about the proverbs uh of taking um, truth from past understanding and applying it today, that we can today, starting Ezekiel is saying, we cannot say that we will operate this way going forward, that to take that point, to take that, that conclusion away from the previous stories and truth would be an improper application for us today. And I'm going to take that last phrase in that sentence of, yes, we do need to acknowledge that the way we tell stories about God needs to change on a very practical level um, because it does shift in the Bible. And I think that we cling to some of the more, not original, but some of the, we try to cling to one version of interpreting a story, mm -hmm. even though it changes throughout the text. But for some reason, I think, especially coming from an evangelical background, there's this idea that you have to hold on 
in order for the text to stand. Um, but that there is a lot of edifying freedom that comes in reimagining how we tell the stories of that. Awesome. Awesome. Just well, that, there, that interpretation, yeah. I think, is clear to say that interpretation that we all cling to is in general in America, white male, post-Reformation, Western world, colonial-inspired interpretation. That that is the water we swim in. I think that we are we're, we're kind of, that we need just to be honest and name that that's the world uh, that all of our our kind of basis have started from. Oh man, we have cast the net out far, and there are still there's still more to reel in, guys. But it's about eleven twenty-five, and we want to commit to our normal time together. But boy, didn't this invite more conversation? Don't you just want to be like, man, I have some questions and I don't necessarily feel comfortable like bringing them up in a chat, but maybe with a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I could do that. Haley, Kyle, would you guys love to hear from people and like talk more about these things? I'm going to say yes, because I know that you would. Uh, we would love to do that. And so we want you to be able to continue the conversations going here. I did see someone uh, drop in the chat, like these were not, these were things that like, if we asked these questions, they were considered sin for some of us as a child. For others of us, as we mentioned before, there, there's like some cognitive dissonance here, but it's not quite as pressurized for us. If you have questions and you just wanna like talk about those things, not from a really like amped up place, but from a place of just like, I'm curious, we also invite those. We would love to continue what we've begun here. That's the whole point of this series for us to feel more free to talk about these things. So we're not looking over our shoulder when we're praying. All right, in the spirit of that, let me pray for us as we move our service to a close. God, the, the, we do not have to feel afraid of these conversations. And I, I believe that in such a powerful way because, of, uh, because I've had experiences of you showing me that you are a God of love. And because I look around and I see you working in the world and because of what you show us most specifically in the life of Jesus and in the death of Jesus and in the resurrection of Jesus, that we have a God that is guiding us, moving us towards something really, really beautiful and really magnetic and attractive. And all manner of our human proclivities toward violence or toward blame shifting or toward being right and making sure that we're right by explaining who's out and wrong all of those things, you take them and you shape us into something more like yourself. And we want to become more like you. We want to have those same attributes as we interact with those around us. And as we interact with ourselves, we wanna be more loving to ourselves. So I pray that you would use this conversation and use any conversations that come out as a result of this to shape all of us into that more looking like you reality in our own lives, and as we relate to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.